everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. We are doing a Leviticus series. Uh, we are on the second to last segment, and I want to actually begin today with where we ended last week, and that is Hebrews chapter 10. Um, if you brought your Bibles, that's great. I would encourage you to do so. We're just going to put up the verse reference, and if you didn't bring your Bibles, there's still in the back a stack, and the Bible's in the back will have the same page numbers as this one I've got here and what will be put up on the screen. And so um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, uh, is where we landed after beginning by looking at a prohibition from Leviticus chapter 17 against drinking blood. How did we get there <laughs> exactly? Well, if you remember, tucked into that command to not drink blood actually had nothing to do with eating your steak medium rare, but everything to do with the meaning that was made that the blood of an animal or of any living being, including, including humans, contained that living being's very life. And so when we hear Jesus on the night he was betrayed tell his disciples this is my blood, when he holds up a glass of wine. This is my blood, take it and drink it to remember me and the blood that I shed for you. The meaning here is not just that Jesus' life was given for us, but that life, the life of Jesus is given to us. The way that that life gets lived out, shown, is given a little bit of definition here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, where it says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And if you just jump down to verse 22, um, our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Jesus' blood to make us clean, remember this, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to, first of all, acts of love, and second of all, good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now, to continue meeting together that the day of Jesus' return is drawing near. And so the idea of Jesus' blood being shed, given to us, the life of Jesus flowing into us, gets connected to these two very fundamental ideas. The first of which is the way that we express the life of Jesus to others through acts of sacrificial love, just as Jesus does, and good works. But the second is to dig deeper into a community of people who are trying to do the same thing, namely show the love of Jesus to the world. These two things are more tightly connected than they might even appear at first glance 
uh, the idea of being in deep community and doing good works and acts of love. Uh, and let me tell you a story to kind of illustrate. <clears throat> uh, this past week, through the generosity of one of our church members, we spent uh, as a staff the week in Southern Bethany Beach at this beautiful beach house. It was on the bay side. And Isla, our two and a half year old, for the first time really spent uh, meaningful time with Maggie Nephis, who is the daughter of our uh, kids pastor. And so they played together and they ran around the house together and they watched Netflix together and they, they talked about kitties together. And, uh, and one night I'm putting Isla to bed and I'm, I'm just starting to pray with her just as we have done every night pretty much since she was born. And Maggie walks in and interrupts the prayer. She doesn't know that she's doing this. But I say, oh, hey, Maggie, we were just going to pray. Would you pray for us? And she does. And the prayer isn't unique, uh, or, or it, I don't even remember exactly what she said. But, you know, she thanked God for friends and for the day and asked God to be close and take care of us. And she said amen, and she left. Now, the next night, something remarkable happened. Because every single night when we pray with Isla, we, we typically ask, Isla, is there anything that you want to say to Jesus? Or, Isla, do you want to pray? And the answer is always No. But this night, as I pray, Isla breaks in. My two-and-a-half-year-old breaks into the prayer and says, God, thank you for my bunnies. And she has two pink bunnies that she sleeps with every night. There is bunny and other bunny. <laughs> Those are their names. <laughs> and she says, she goes on. She says, and God, thank you for my passies which some of you call binkies or pacifier. She loves her pacifier, and she only can have it in her mouth at nap time and bedtime. And uh, she's, she's doing this as she's thinking. And I, I say, Isla, is there anything else you would like to thank God for? Because I'm, I'm waiting for mommy and daddy, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking mommy and daddy. Uh, you know, let's thank God for mommy and daddy. She says, and thank you, God, for my neck. <laughs> so, so <laughs> Hebrews 10. The way we learn how to live out the life of Jesus, whether it be through prayer or good works or anything else, has an absolute lot to do with the community that you plug into, with the people you decide to spend time with. And so that's why I think church is really important. Gathering together on Sunday is really important, but going deeper than that through tripods and through life groups, that becomes a foundational way that we learn to live out the life of Jesus. Now, before we jump into Leviticus, I actually want to do a little more work because Leviticus uh, 19 and 20 have a lot of, there's a lot there, and I think it's important to understand how it functions. So jump with me to Romans chapter 3. This is a, this is a fairly famous passage. It's a little bit dense, um, and I'll do my best to explain it as we go. But this is, this is context for how the law, or the Torah is the Hebrew word for it, uh, becomes or is understood through the lens of Jesus. And when you hear law, 
or Torah, there's a general reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is important because even the laws like the commands come to us in the context of story. But there are a few highlight points of the law, which include the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and uh, I would say Leviticus 20, chapter 20 as well, with, which Jesus, as we'll see later, makes a reference to in his Sermon on the Mount. So, um, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. In other words, when we read through Leviticus 19 and 20, you are not made right by God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Okay, now that's one of the ways that the laws function. As you read Paul, his understanding of the law has at least three functions. And these functions are defined by a man named John Calvin. Think 1525, the year 1525. This young lawyer uh, becomes a Protestant Christian, flees from Catholic France, and goes to Switzerland to found a Christian community and becomes one of the main systematic thinkers for Christian theology as we know it today. So John Calvin, I think I have a picture of him, has a lawyer background and is really trying to bring uh, systematic thought to how the law functions. First of all, the law functions as a mirror to self. That's what Romans 3 verse 20 is saying. If you just compare your good deeds or your good living to everyone else around you, you might think, well, I'm not so bad. I don't, you know, swear at people who cut me off and I, you know, I tip my servers at a restaurant. But if you compare your life to the law and not, you know, the commands of God, the heart of God, if, if God becomes your standard and as we understand how God operates through his law, we realize that we fall short. So there's a self-awareness function to the law. The second function to the law is a curb to sin, and Calvin is primarily thinking about social uh, sin or the, the like, civil or civic communities, nations, society holds together because the law reminds us that there are, are ways to just go totally off the road. And if you, if you lie, for instance, steal, cheat, think Ten Commandments, murder, society is going to unravel. The third function of the law, which is the one that I emphasize the most, is a way to live. So think, it, think of it as a path to walk down as you uh, love and follow Jesus and love and serve people. So three functions of the law, Romans 3 verse 20 begins by pointing out that first mirror to self. Let's keep going. But now God has shown us, verse 21, a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Moses wrote Leviticus, according to tradition. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Again, think about all we talked about last week. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. 
So there's all this, there's this new understanding that to be made right with God does not demand that we are perfectly obedient to the law, but rather through the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood is shed, his life is given. We are made clean and pure and holy purely by grace. And so the love that we have from God is not earned. It is a free gift. Let's jump down to verse 31. Not that the stuff in between isn't important, but we have a lot more Bible to read today. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Leviticus, Exodus, Can we forget about all that stuff? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. And this English translation is trying to do a little theological work, but if you look at the Hebrew specifically, or or, sorry, Greek, this is New Testament, so it's Greek. If you look at the Greek, it, it actually just says, no, of course not, we uphold it. Now, what does Paul mean by, does this mean we forget about the law? No, he says we uphold it, we esteem it. We follow it. Now, again, here's where John Calvin can help us. He looks at the Old Testament law, again, through the lens of Paul, and he says, basically, let's just say in Leviticus, there are three types of law. The first type of law is the sacrificial system, burnt offerings, sacrifices. We don't do that because Jesus does that for us totally. The second type of law you'll find in Leviticus are civil laws or the sorts of things you might find in the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. law book, which, well, I mean, would fill this room and then some, right? (laughs) The how do you live as a nation, you'll find a little bit about that. Uh, In particular, the holidays of the uh, people of Israel were very linked up. The like national holidays were all religious holidays. But then there's this third kind of law, which we would say that Paul is talking about here, the ethical law. And what you'll find mostly in Leviticus 19 and 20 is that ethical law. So the idea of the path or the way to live in the functions of the law and the ethical law are where Leviticus 19 and 20 line up and come together and where we're going to uh, apply the teachings to our lives. So now, finally, if you turn to Leviticus, that's all the way back, page 123. Now, I'm going to skip a big chap- part of chapter 18, and it's because uh, in chapter 18, there's a long, very detailed discourse about sexual ethics. And it's not that sexual ethics aren't important. Of course they are. But if you want to have a conversation about sexual ethics, Leviticus 18 is not the place to begin or end that conversation. And uh, often I think Leviticus 18 is used or misused as a clobber passage. In other words, you see people living a sexual ethic that you don't hold and you use Leviticus 18 to smack them over the head with it, which is not the heart of Jesus, by the way. And I would say one of the ways that we misuse the Bible and just totally get it wrong is when we become the morality police. God's heart for you is not to police other people's behavior. God's desire and purpose for you is to bring the message of Jesus and to show the world how he loves them. 
And so in other, in other words, it's not primarily a message of you must behave. It is primarily a message of you can belong to Jesus and you can belong to our community that is centered on the person of Jesus. And so I'm going to skip the, the sexual ethic part. And I would say, when you're talking about sexual ethics, there's, there's a lot of tensions to be held and cultural context to be understood. And uh, I like to whisper when I'm not sh totally sure about what the Bible is teaching rather than shout, which some people tend toward the shouting. But um, I'm just going to kind of jump over that discussion <laughs> other than to say like sexual ethics are important. The New Testament says they're important. I'm not going to get specific today. So Leviticus chapter 18, ba-boom. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. Remember, the people are in the wilderness right now. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees for I am the Lord your God, which I think in these two chapters comes up 26 or 27 times, a reminder that God is the rescuer of his people, because that's where God reveals this name when he comes to rescue his people from slavery. Verse five, if you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord Whatever you do, do not forget, I am the Lord, your God, who saved you. This little prelude is really important for us today. Some of you may not know the name David Foster Wallace, but he, uh, the late David Foster Wallace, gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College back in 2005, and he begins by telling a parable about two fish. He says, there were two young fish swimming along when they bump into an older fish, and the older fish says, hey boys, how's the water? And the younger fish, you know, chuckle and smile and nod like they do whenever they hear an older fish say something they don't totally understand and they swim along. And one of the fish turns to the young fish, uh, one of the younger fish turns to the other younger fish and says, what the heck is water? <laughs> this little prelude reminds us that we live in a cultural water that we are not always aware of, and that, just as he is warning the people of Israel here, if we're not careful, we will adopt the values and the practices and the behaviors of the culture that we live in. David Foster Wallace goes on to tell us one of the main cultural forces in our country today is self-centeredness. We tend to think about me first and sometimes me only which is in direct opposition to the value of Jesus to love sacrificially and to think of others before yourself. Another cultural value that we live in, that if we just went along with what we saw 
in the stores, on television, on Facebook, and the news, would be consumerism and the value of money and the value of stuff. We see a person's worth primarily as their net worth, not as the worth they have as a child of the creator of the universe, made in the image of God. These are the cultural waters that we all swim in. But something kind of interesting is happening lately because of partly social media and partly the hostile political climate. Uh, because the tendency is that you find people who are like you and who you like and you only spend time with them. That's one of the cool things about church. You're in a room with a bunch of people who are not like you. And you might not even like all of them either. <laughs> but by coming together, you're forced into this place where you have to love, like really love, even people who are different, where the cultural tendency is you segment. And so the cultural waters of the conservative wing of our country are very different than the cultural waters of the liberal wing. And you have different stories and different ways to understand the same experience and you process information and data very differently. But the the charge here is to become aware of the cultural waters that you are swimming in, to know and to notice where those cultural values diverge from the life that God wants for you, the values that God holds, the heart that God has. Is not the same heart and does not have the same voice as a lot of the other voices that you're hearing throughout your week. So, Let's hear a little bit about the kind of life that God desires for his people. So let's jump ahead to verse 19. If you're in this Bible, just flip the page. Leviticus 19, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Some of you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we did, was that last July outside? Yeah, so almost exactly a year ago, Jesus makes this command to be perfect as I am perfect. This is the way that his Greek Old Testament translated this verse in Leviticus. So when he says be perfect as I am perfect, he's actually referencing Leviticus chapter 19 and his most important talk, so to speak, or sermon of his career. He references Leviticus 19. Verse 3, each of you must show great respect for your mother and father, and you must always observe my Sabbath days of rest. I am the Lord your God. Do not put your trust in idols or make metal images of gods for yourself. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a peace offering to the Lord, offer it properly so you will be accepted by God. The sacrifice must be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the next day. Whatever is left over until the third day must be completely burned. If any of the sacrifice is eaten on the third day, it will be contaminated, and I will not accept it. Anyone who eats it on the third day will be punished for defiling what is holy to the Lord and will be cut off from the community. See, already we, we have some ethical commands, and here we have a sacrificial system command. And this command is basically, don't eat deli meat after it's been in the fridge for too many days. Or in this case, there's no refrigerator. So... If, if, the, if the meat is gross to you, don't try to offer it as a sacrifice to me. Um, just toss it out. Verse 9, 
is a very important verse to us, something that we keep as part of the rhythm of our life here at the vineyard. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grains along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. We here, of course, every week have our Four Corners offering, where we remember the poor and encourage you to bring even just a dollar every week to go to an organization that serves the poor. And this is, this is one of those places where like the ethical and the, uh, the, the civil or like the, the social law kind of intersect because we don't have to do that in our fields, or, uh, or, but there's still this kind of ethical heart behind the command for the civil uh, law that we try to practice today by remembering the poor with that special offering, right? Okay, number 11, do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your Lord God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Is this, I mean, this is pretty, I think, good stuff. You could spend a lot of time meditating on this and trying to live this out, and you can imagine how much kinder the world might be if you followed all of this. But you also might be interspersed throughout these commands, be reminded of what other passage from the Torah. You're hearing some commands that sound a lot like the Ten Commandments, am I right? Okay. Verse 13, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. The principle here, right? You can, you can extract the exact command and bring it to a principle. Like treat, if you're a boss, treat your workers well. If you're a manager, treat the people you manage with respect. Verse 14 is really an interesting one. Again, especially as you try to apply this, not just in the literal way, but in the, the heart of the thing. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. I mean, there's a whole lot packaged in that, isn't there? So first of all, if you're cursing the deaf... Of course, they can't hear you. And if you put a stumbling block in front of someone who's blind, they can't see it. And odds are you're, you're just being a jerk. Like you're making a joke that you think is funny, but the person that the joke is on clearly does not think it's funny. There is a way to apply that passage. Another way to apply that little command is this this. Reality that God is looking out for people who are vulnerable, who are handicapped, who can't defend themselves. There's this lean toward people who are oppressed or at the bottom of the power hierarchy. God says, I want to make sure that you protect them. You must fear your God. You might not be afraid or have respect for them, but respect them because you respect me. 
Do not twist justice in legal matters, verse 15, by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Now, one of the interesting things, this verse could be translated slightly different. Instead of by favoring the poor, it could be, do not twist legal justice by turning your face away from the poor, which is actually a very different meaning, isn't it? Because our tendency, our natural tendency, is if people have money, we assume they must be really smart and really good or something. And so we'll give them favor so that maybe they'll show us favor. And the poor don't have anything to give us, so we'll just kind of ignore them. That's the natural thing. And God is actually saying, actually turn your face toward the poor, maybe there. Verse 16, do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Again, a reminder that when you were helpless, by saying I am the Lord, you're connecting it to that Exodus moment. When you were helpless, God says, when you were needy, when you were slaves, I rescued you. And so now when you see people who are needy, who are helpless, who are enslaved by whatever it might be, my heart is for you to rescue, care for, love, encourage them. Verse 17, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Hold your breath. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. In other words, that whole just let the water go under the bridge thing. Like if you have an issue with someone, this is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, big book, rule number, is it six? I'm not, it's been a while. You make amends. If you find yourself roasting somebody in your heart because of something they did, now you've got a problem. <laughs> like you're the guilty one by either slandering gossip, triangulating, or just simply turning that person into a villainous, uh, barely recognizable piece of burned meat. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is another command from Leviticus 19 that you maybe remember Jesus repeating because somebody comes to Jesus and said, what is the summation of the law? And Jesus says, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. But the second is like it. You want to know what the law of God is all about? It's this. Leviticus 19 verse 18. Do not, or, or uh, <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's an entire life of love and sacrificial service. Verse 19, you must obey all my decrees. Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two different kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven from two different kinds of thread. What the what? Okay, so you were reading this thinking, this is all really good stuff. And then you get to verse uh, 19. And I bet every single, anybody follow this one? Nobody in this room follows this one. Why is it here? Is it just a culturally irrelevant piece of advice that really doesn't bear on our, you know, polyester uh, shirts or, I don't know, whatever your shoes are made of? 
or is it, why is it there, right? Why is it there? It goes back to the idea. So the, the command is don't mix two different kinds of what material, different translations say different things, I guess. But there are, uh, there's this idea that you, the people of God, live differently, uniquely, noticeably separate, not in a like isolated way, but in a, in a noticeable way from others. And so God here is giving something concrete, something very easy to understand so that they can better uh, wrap their minds around the idea of what it really means to be holy. So just as God is saying, don't take polyester and cotton and weave them together, he's saying, don't let your values conform to the values of the Egyptians from where you came or the Canaanites to where you're going because the natural thing is to become like the people you live by. The natural thing is to become like the television you watch. The natural thing is to become like the products you purchase. God is saying, I designed you for something greater. I designed you to be holy, to love differently than anyone else in all the world. I want to read just a little part of the David Foster Wallace commencement speech because it's, it's made an impact on my life. So remember, he's, he's speaking to graduating college seniors and they're about to begin You know, it's the first day of the rest of their life, I guess. He says, the plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in and day out really means. There happens to be a whole large part of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here know exactly what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white collar college graduate job and you work hard for eight or 10 hours and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the workday and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and get out quickly. You have to wander all over this huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want, and you have to maneuver your junky cart through all of these other tired, hurried people with carts, etc., etc., cutting out stuff because this is a long ceremony. And eventually you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. 
So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. <laughs> but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working at the register because she's overworked. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and you get told to have a nice day. And then you take your plastic bag of groceries and your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left <laughs> all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet become part of your graduate's actual life routine day after week after month after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines beside. But that is not the point. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And God says, this is not the life I want for you. Do not be like the Egyptians from where you came or the Canaanites to where you go. I have a different set of values, a different set of behaviors, a different way of being, a different way of loving. It is not just about you. I am the Lord your God, he says. I make you holy. My life is different than the life of the mundane rat race of buying more stuff and making more money and dating more girls. If you're, you know, not married, I'm looking at, you know, you guys, some of you guys, right? It's not just about finding the prettier girl or the more handsome guy or buying the nicer SUV or getting the next phone. God says, I have a heart for people. And to be holy, to be whole, is to love the way that I love. And I'm not, I'm not leaving you on your own. And you're not going to be rejected if you can't live the way that I'm asking you, inviting you to live. I am going to show you grace. I will accept you when you screw up. And that's part of the ticket, isn't it? That you accept people when they screw up too because God accepted you even though you screwed up. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And if you start to feel a little flimsy like a balloon that's lost most of its air, it's time to pray once again, come Holy Spirit and fill me up. Because Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. In fact, all the law gets interpreted, gets understood, finds meaning in the two commands of Jesus as he summarizes the law. Love God and love people. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Bring us life. For those of us who are bored, give us purpose. Help us to connect to your mission for the world. Infuse us with your love. For those of us who are full of despair, who are anxious, who are run down, fill us with your joy and with your peace. And now as we worship you, Jesus, we ask that you, we would experience you, that we would feel the lift of your presence. So restore us during this time as we actually make you the center of our thoughts, of our words, and, uh, and of our emotions. We bring you our entire self. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.